Hebrews. Hebrews 3 is where we're going to be. Um, l- let me say this. When you are reading Scripture, um, at least when I'm reading Scripture, I think if you're reading Scripture honestly, there are times that will make you nervous. There are places, there are texts that if, if you're being honest with yourself and you're reading the text honestly, you should occasionally, at least occasionally, come across the text and go, uh, uh-oh. Um, Matthew 7 is one of those for me. Every time I come to Matthew 7, there's a little passage I want to show it to you. Matthew 7, it, it says this. It makes me a little nervous every time I come across it. it. makes me have a little check in myself. It says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. That immediate, that first sentence right there should, should, should cause a lot of things in us. Should make us want to ask a lot of questions. Like, like who? Like, people who say, Lord, Lord, who are the people who are going to say, Lord, Lord, who aren't going to? Because I want to make sure that I'm not part of this group, right? What do I need to do to make sure I'm not? But it gets tougher. He says this, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. He goes on and he says this, many will say to me on that day. Look at this. This is where you should get really nervous. At least I get really nervous. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. He doesn't even disqualify with saying, didn't we perform miracles? We performed many miracles. Okay, so here, if we were to like have a draft, if we were to pick teams for like Christian maturity, okay, you go with me on this illustration, okay? If we were to be like, a-level varsity team player Christians, okay? Like the best of the best, the people you'd be like, <laughs> they got it figured out, right? Like like Paul, can we all agree? Like if there's a starting 11 for Christians uh, 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 in human history, Paul is on that starting 11, right? James, right? We, we can think of some, some incredible people, right? Varsity level. And then there's like JV, Right? And they're doing good. They got potential. They have a future. They've had a great trajectory, but they're kind of JV. Okay? And then maybe there's like JV2, right? And then there's like rec league, which is most of us. Right? We're just happy to be out here, right? <laughs> if we were to rate people, can we, can, we, can we all agree that like if someone is prophesying and casting out demons and performing many miracles... Like, they're probably varsity-level Christian, aren't they? Like, if, if you, okay, I don't know if you've performed a miracle. That, that would be an awesome conversation to have with you if you've performed a miracle. But for Jesus to describe you as performing many miracles, and yet, he says these people will say to him, Lord, Lord, and they won't enter should make a little check in us and go, whoa, 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 wait a second. Maybe, maybe there's a way for me to see demonstrations of power that aren't actually connected to a heart transformation in someone. Maybe when, Jesus, when God says that man looks on the outward appearance, but, but I'll look at the heart, maybe it's not just about whether someone's attractive or talented. Maybe... Maybe there's a way for people 
to demonstrate power and inside their heart, they're far from Jesus. Look at what he says, the last verse, it says this. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Do you remember who he just said he never knew? Those prophesying, those casting out demons, those performing many miracles. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Every time I come across this passage, I go, whew, I got to make sure that my heart's right with Jesus. Because no matter what's demonstrated out here, if my heart's not right from Jesus, I, I could be one of those. You could be one of, we could be those people. It makes me kind of have a little check in my heart. The writer of Hebrews today is, is, is going to um, use a story that should, for all of us, it's another spot where when we read the story, it should like make us go, uh, uh-oh, like it should make us a little nervous, and it definitely would have made a Jew nervous. It's a story of the Exodus. Do you know the story, right? Whether you've seen the Ten Commandments or you've seen the Prince of Egypt or if you've like actually physically read it in uh, the, the Bible, right? There's these people. You know the story? They're enslaved for hundreds of years. For generations, they're enslaved uh, in Egypt. And God hears them. He hears their cry, and God comes to deliver them. And, and uh, here's the thing. Before we tell the story, I, this is just my opinion. It's not in Scripture. This is my opinion. This generation that we're going to talk about had to have been the people that quantitatively saw the most miracles of any generation. I mean, think about, think about what they saw, right? First, you get the 10 plagues. God sends Moses, they got the 10 plagues. They're cosmic, world-shaking miracles that God performs. And he probably performs them over about two years, which means if you do the math, about every two or three months, God is doing something so cataclysmically amazing that everyone can see it, right? Nobody's missing out on the frogs, Nobody's not seen the locusts everywhere. Nobody's not impacted by the Nile River turning red. These are amazing. For two years, every 8, 10, 12 weeks, God shows up in a crazy way, right? God shows up in an amazing way. And then finally, one of the most miraculous things happened, and God, without the people having a single weapon to their access. God frees them from the most powerful army of the most powerful man of the known world. He frees them. The, 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 the Pharaoh just says to them, you may go. And they walk out. And actually it says, I don't know if you've ever read this, it actually says that they plundered Egypt. Not only did he let them leave, but they took a bunch of stuff from the Egyptians and they walked out the gates of Egypt. And they walk out towards what they expect to be towards the promised land. And they end up, you know, this, they end up out by the Red Sea. And Pharaoh changes his mind. And this army comes chasing after him. That's just, I mean, just tanks and fighter pilots. Like, this is a huge army. Okay? The, the technology is amazing. They come chasing after him. They're, they're all panicky. And then God, you remember what he did? He parts the Red Sea. These are the same people that just for two years just watched God do miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. God parts the Red Sea. Now, no matter where you mark off the parting of the Red Sea, it is a long walk. Like, this is not the parting of the Red Pond 
where they all get through in about 20 seconds. This is a jaunt that they are on, and they walk with walls of water miraculously held up by the hand of God. And they walk through on dry ground, and they get to the other side. And then once they're all safe on the other side, the largest, most powerful army in the known world is wiped out by the power of God without a single person lifting a finger. That's amazing. I mean, in fact, when you read the story, all they do is sing. They're just like, God's amazing. He's amazing. He's amazing. Woo! He's amazing. They just celebrate. God takes them out in the wilderness, and he he says, uh, I'm going I'm to make you my people. I'm going to prepare you to be my people. Well, they're out in the wilderness. There's, you know, there's no um, grocery stores. There's no farmer's markets. There's no farms. It's the desert. And they don't have any food. And every single morning, six days a week, not on the Sabbath, but six days a week, they wake up and there's just food waiting for them. There's bread. It's a, it says light, sweet um, bread that just appears in the morning. Manna, the word manna in Hebrew, it literally just has this idea. It's just like, huh? Which is what you would say if you walked outside and all of a sudden in your front lawn there was just light, sweet bread everywhere. And then maybe the most miraculous thing God has done in all of Scripture, all these people ate light, sweet bread for 40 years and none of them got fat. That's all they ate, right? I don't know if you've heard this. I have this theory. I have this theory about what manna was. They were confused, but it's because God was ahead of his time. I don't know how that makes any sense. That's not a thing. But anyways, that's a, theologically, that's a bad tenet. But uh, light, fluffy, sweet bread appears everywhere. You know what it was? It was Krispy Kreme everywhere. <laughs> Just Every morning they woke up and no one got fat and nobody got the jitters, right? Nobody has so much sugar that they're like shaking, right? That's all they ate. God provided for them every single day without effort, without toil. There was food. And then, you know, it's a desert. Do you, do you know what makes a desert? A desert is a thing that lacks one essential property. Water. And there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people now and out in desert. And you can't go long without water. And so God miraculously provides water out of a rock. Out of a rock, all of a sudden, enough water comes flowing to provide water for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Moses goes up on the mountain. He comes down. His face is glowing. Like God is just showing off the whole time to these people. He gives them the law. Miraculous. One of the most gracious things God does in all the Old Testament is he gives them the law. Because a lot of times, see, we think of the law incorrectly. A lot of times we think of the law as rules so that God can prevent us from having any fun. The truth is that the law was a gift to the people to say, hey, this is how I built you to be. This is how I made you to be my people. This is how we can commune together and you can find life and goodness. That's why David rejoices over the law. He gives them the law. They, they've got Krispy Kreme every morning. They've got beautiful, fresh water flowing all the time. And then, and then there are people just like us. So what do we like to do? We like to complain so they complain and they're like, oh, bread and more bread. I wish, I wish it was like the good old days in Egypt. Oh, when they beat us and we worked from light, from sun up to sundown. Remember those good old days, right? 
Oh, I wish we had meat to eat and not just bread and bread and more bread. And God gives them birds for hundreds. Maybe you've, maybe you've cooked for a big group. For hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, God provides meat to them. He does all these amazing, miraculous things. And then here's the terrifying part. Remember the story? He leads them up to the Jordan River. And he says, that land on the other side of the Jordan, that's the land that I've been promising to your family for generations. That's the land you dreamed about and hoped about. That's the land flowing with milk and honey. I want you to go take that land. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. You remember that? That was just like a couple weeks ago. And I want you to go across the, you remember? I, I brought you across the Red Sea. I want you to cross, walk across the little river. I over, overpowered the most powerful army in the world, and I want you to go over and conquer these few little cities and armies over here. And you remember what the people say? They go, ah. But they're really tall. I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if you could do... I mean, have you seen how big their grapes are? I don't know if you could do that. And then, in one of God's displays of his wrath... Here, um, we, we often in, in church, we think of God's wrath incorrectly. Uh, we think of God's wrath as like lightning and violence and disease... The most terrifying, the most destructive, the most harmful version of God's wrath is this. It's to let you have what you want. It's what Paul says in Romans. He handed them over. He let them have what they want. Do you remember? A lot of times we think that the, the, the generation died out in the wilderness as punishment from God. And that is in part true. But do you remember what the, the, that generation wanted? Do you remember what they said? We want to stay out here. And God said, I have a land flowing with milk and honey, with life and goodness. And just in the same way as I conquered the Pharaoh and brought you out of Egypt and brought you across the Red Sea and provided you manna and provided you water, I want to give you this land. And they said, we'd rather die out in the desert. Should make us a little... Nervous because sometimes, sometimes we get the misguided idea that if God would just show up in this moment, like if God would just answer this one prayer, if God would just do this miraculous thing one time for me, that would be enough for me. If God would show up, if he'd heal this person, if he'd fix this problem, if he'd restore this relationship, that miraculous move of God would be enough for me to be faithful and to serve him for all my days. And yet, we look at a generation that saw God move in more miraculous ways than any other generation that ever lived. And when they came to the edge of the Jordan and he invited them into the land, he promised them. They were faithless. They chose instead to die in the wilderness. And what was it about those people? What could we do? That's the question the writer of Hebrews wants to ask us. What can we do? What do we need to do? What is the, what is the preventative maintenance that we can do? What is, what is the steps we can take so that we don't end up like them? So that we don't end up 
People who see God all throughout our life do miraculous, amazing things. And in the end, Jesus stands in front of us and says, depart from me because I actually never knew you. Here's what he says. Hebrews 3, verse 12. My friends, be careful that none of you have a heart so evil and unbelieving that you will turn away from the living God. In the end of chapter three, he's, he's, gonna, he's gonna use the story of, and even in the beginning of chapter three, he uses the story of the Exodus. And here's an interesting little allusion you can see here in the text. He says, um, be careful that none of you have a heart so evil and unbelieving. These are the two great rebellions of the people who came out of Egypt. Their hearts were evil. Do you remember um, when they came out of Egypt and Moses goes up on the mountain and they panic and they're like, oh, God brought us out here to die. Moses is like, run for it. Like, I don't know, like Moses wanted to go visit India or something and he's just abandoned us. And, and they turned to building a golden calf. You remember the story? They built a golden calf to comfort their fear and their, their, uh, uh, their, their insecurity about the future to find confidence and hope in other things. This is the evil rebellion of the people who came out of Egypt. And then here's the other thing, the unbelieving. What was the other rebellion? They came to the edge of the Jordan River. God says, there's a promised land. I want to take you into it. And in their unbelieving hearts, they rebelled. And so the writer of Hebrews says, make sure, make sure you're not like them. But look at this. Here's another interesting thing in the text. He says, be careful that none of you now, here, here's what's really clear in the text. You can look at some different versions of phrases, phrases it different ways. Here's, here's really clear. He, um, here's what he's saying. You have a responsibility to your brothers and sisters. You have a responsibility. He's saying, and I think Scripture is saying us to this today, that it is you have a, 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 an obligation to brothers and sisters in faith you have a responsibility to make sure, to look out for them, to care for them, to protect them, to speak truth to them, to be careful that none of you, he's making a command to us that we owe an obligation to one another, to care for one another. Here's the thing. Part of what it means to be a church is that we are committed to one another. We serve one another. We walk with one another. One of my favorite verses, it says this. It says, to carry your burdens one with another. We have a debt to pay one another. We have a debt of love. We have an obligation to love one another, carry one another's burdens, to endure with one another. And we have an obligation to be a part of the gatekeepers of one another's hearts, who help protect one another's hearts from this, from turning away from the living God. Now, the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us in the next verse, if you have it open, you could cheat and look ahead, but he's going to tell us, he's going to tell us how we honor that obligation to one another, how we make sure that none of one of us ends up like the people who came out of Egypt dying in the desert before we're called to go into the land that God's called us into, before we enter into the fullness of eternal life, that we wander, that we have an unbelieving or evil heart. He's going to tell us how we do that. And, and it's shocking. You see, if, if I was writing the book of Hebrews and, uh, and I said, you have an obligation to make sure that none of you falls away. And here's how you do it. He, here's how you make sure that nobody has an evil and unbelieving heart. There's some things I could come up with. There's probably some things you could come up with. 
You know, I'm, I might say something like this. I, I might say, make sure that none of you has an evil or unbelieving heart. Make sure that every single person has an accountability partner. Wouldn't that be good? Right? Like, make sure you have someone in your life that you've given permission to ask any question. Make sure that you have someone, which, which I think you should. I think you should have at least one person in your life who has permission to ask you. There is nothing that's off limit. They can ask you about relationships. They can ask you about finances. They can ask you about, um, they can go through your phone. They can go through your social. They can go through anything. That they can be people who know the places where you're weak. They, they know the places where you struggle. And if I was writing the book of Hebrews, I'd say, hey, make sure you take care of one another. Make sure that nobody wanders or turns away from God. And here's how you do it. Make sure every single person has an accountability partner. But you know, there's a problem with an accountability partner. It's this. Accountability partners are only as helpful as you're willing to be honest. Scripture says that um, our hearts are deceivingly wicked. I had a professor who said, our minds are never so creative as in our attempts to justify sin. An accountability partner is great, and you should have people in your life that hold you accountable. The problem is, the problem is it's only as valuable as you're willing to be honest, and if you don't want to be honest with an accountability partner, it's not going to actually safeguard anything in your heart. If I was writing it, I'd say, you know, you should have accountability partner. Another thing we might, we might say is um, if you want to help safeguard someone's faith so that they don't wander away from the faith, they don't turn away from the faith, here's what you should do. You should make a bunch of rules. We should make rules. So like if, if this is the line, right, like if this is the line that God says don't cross this line, then maybe a good thing for us would be to like make a rule that you don't cross this line, Right? Like if, if, if there are certain things that you shouldn't see in movies, okay, and there's this line here, then maybe we should make a rule that says you shouldn't watch any movies, right? If there are certain places, certain establishments or restaurants that, that have bad things going on that you shouldn't participate in, then we should make a line that, that you, right, right, you, should, you don't go to any of those types of places. I, I remember growing up, my dad, the church he grew up in was a great church, formed his faith in some really positive ways. But one of the phrases that they said was they would say this, they would say, um, there's black and white, right? There's good and bad. There's black and white. And they would say this, and gray is too black, right? And, and just be honest, especially raising kids, there's some wisdom in that. There's some wisdom there's some wisdom to say, hey, if this is the line, why are we like tap dancing over here? Like right on the line, right? Like let's put, but you know the problem is? It's like this. You, um, there's this old saying, you probably know the saying, old saying that says this, um, locks only keep honest people out. You know that, right? You know that? Locks only keep honest people out. Rules only keep honest people in. If you want to find your way into places you're not supposed to be, doing things you're not supposed to be, that you even know in your heart that God's called you away from, you can find all kinds of ways to justify yourself to get into that situation. You can even stand on the outside and go, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I just got caught up in the moment. It was just like, I don't know how I ended up here. It's just a mistake. And we can come up with all kinds. In fact, in fact, one of Jesus' great criticism of the religious leaders was that they focused more on this then they focused on this. He says at one point, he says, you tithe of the mint and the dill. 
There's not an Old Testament command to tithe on. It says you should tithe on everything, right? It does, but it doesn't use mint and dill as an illustration of what you should be tithing on in the Old Testament. But they were tithing on, have you ever tried taking, a, I want you to go home and do, take a piece of mint or a piece of dill and try and estimate a tenth of it. And then take that and then take it to like a friend who's like a mile and a half away. This is, this is the minutia of their detail that they focused on, uh, on a tenth of all these itty bitty little, they were making sure that if this was the line, they weren't anywhere close to messing up. They came up with all these rules about Sabbath regulations because God said to honor the Sabbath, this was the line here. And so they would say, well, we don't know what it means to honor the Sabbath, so here's a rule we're going to come up with. You can only take this many steps. You can only walk this far. And they would create these buffer zones. And Jesus, Jesus says, you tithe in the mint and the dill, but you miss the greater parts of the law, grace, mercy, and justice. You do all the right things, but you miss all the hard things. If I was making it, I'd be like, here's how you protect one another. Accountability partners. Rules. That's not what the Hebrew writer of Hebrews says. He says this, verse 13. But encourage one another. <laughs> when I was reading this, I wanted something with more teeth, right? Like I wanted something that was like, oh, here's how you make sure nobody turns away. If somebody messes up, you drag them up on stage and you make them confess their sins in front of everybody else. That'll keep them from doing it again. Right? I want someone with some teeth. It says, here's, here's how you make sure that none of you wanders away from an evil or unbelieving heart. <laughs> you encourage one another. But encourage one another. Day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another. How is it that we make sure that we owe this obligation to one another to make sure that none of us wanders away, that we don't end up like, like the generation who died in the wilderness seeing miraculous moves of God all throughout our life, being able to look back and say, God did this, and he did this, and he did this, and in the end, our hearts are far from him. We encourage one another. We speak life. We speak truth. We speak kindness. We grab one another around the shoulder and we say, hey, I am so proud of you. I'm so grateful for you. Man, I, I've, you've been such a gift to me. The way that you do that, the way that you serve, the way that you talk to your spouse, the way you talk to your children has been such a gift to me. It's been incredible. Thank you so much. Encourage one another. If we want to help be a part of a community where we together as a community endure. We must be a place. It's as simple as this. It's astoundingly simple. We encourage one another. I mean, why would we be that surprised? I mean, just think back. Maybe it hasn't happened a lot in your life. Maybe it's been very few times, but think back to the times where someone has grabbed you by the shoulders, looked you in the eyes, and said, I'm proud of you. I'm grateful for you. You can do this. You, 
you know what I see God doing in you? God has equipped you and gifted you in a way that is unique and special. Thank you. Man, those moments, those moments can be life-changing for us. Why would we not think it would be for one another? In fact, Paul, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says this. Here we go. He says this in in Ephesians 5.19. He says this. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. You guys, we, we have an obligation to one another. We have a debt we owe one another. And that debt is to love one another the way that Christ has loved us. That debt is to encourage one another, to speak truth, to speak goodness, to speak the words that God says, that you are a dearly loved child. You are my brother and my sister, and I'm so grateful that you're here and you're part of this, and God wants to do something in you, and he's built you and he's equipped you. This is our debt. And so I wonder, I wonder who is it today? Who is it today that you need to text? You just need to send a text. Just say, hey, I've been praying for you. Hey, I love you. I'm so grateful that you're part of my life. Hey, thank you for the ways that you've served or what you've done. And, or, you, or you need to send a letter or an email. Or you need to invite them out to lunch or to coffee or to have them over to your house and just say, hey, you know what? I've seen God do such incredible things in your life. I've seen the way you've grown. I've seen the way you've changed. Or I'm so grateful for the ways you've impacted my life. If we are going to be a people who in a desert kind of world, in a world that, let's be honest, can be crushingly difficult, in a time and a season that can be wrought with such pain and heartache, if we're going to be a people who, when we come to the edge of the Jordan, have the faith to follow the God who's calling us into his land of milk and honey, of goodness and life, it will be because we have walked together as a family, encouraging one another day in and day out as long as today is called today. And so may we be that place. May you be that person to someone else today.